morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together today. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and we're really glad that you're here. Our desire as a church is to be a Christ-centered church for all people. So wherever you're at in your own journey, I assure you, this is a good place for you, and we're really glad that you're here. Hey, speaking of your spiritual journey, if you're a follower of Christ and you haven't been baptized, then like, why not? It's a huge stake in the ground for your own progress where you declare publicly before family and friends that Christ has changed your life and it's your desire to be a faithful follower of him. And it's a huge encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ to have these reminders, powerful reminders about the power of God's love to change our lives. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't been, to think about getting baptized. It's going to be a couple weekends from now. The information is in your bulletin as well, and you can sign up for our next baptism services. So American Idol, The Voice, you probably have heard of them. And if you're into that kind of a show, you probably pick one over the other. I'm a voice guy, sorry. But what I've noticed is both of those shows start in the same way with the auditions. And just about every season that I ever watched, and I don't watch them all, I've, I've noticed that they've got to get one of those in there. What I'm talking about is one of these horrendous auditions where, what, can we just say, they were more than just a little bit pitchy. I mean, you could tell. And if you couldn't tell, because maybe you are a little pitchy, um, all of a sudden you know something's awry here. The camera switches from the contestant to the judge who's wincing and grimacing and eyes kind of contorting like that. And sometimes even, you know, even the contestant has a surprised look on their face when they like miss the note. And you go, oh, that person's not just off pitch. That person's off the show. It's not going to work. Paul's, he's hearing reports about his brothers and sisters scattered across Rome in those smaller house churches, and he's heard that there's dissonance, that they're tone deaf, that they're actually tuned in far more to their own preferences and their own freedoms than they, than they are each other, and there's division in the church, and it's a great concern, and he's been talking about the importance of living out the gospel, and at the heart of his message, he keeps going back from all the way from 12, chapter 12, verse 9, he keeps going back to the importance of being devoted to each other, to honor each other in love, to let the transforming love of the gospel transform our relationships within the body of Christ, to be marked by love and service and humility and deference. And so when we read about these passages of love, like in 1 Corinthians 13, it's really easy for us to just think about warm fuzzies. You know, especially 1 Corinthians 13, you know, we think about a wedding. Love is patient, love is kind. But actually what's going on in 1 Corinthians 13, what's going on in this section, chapter 12, almost through the end of chapter 15 is, it's a strong rebuke. Paul's calling out his brothers and sisters. Why are you dividing up over these things that are, they're just disputable matters. They're not a big deal. Why, why, why are you making these little things into big things that are dividing you? Stop it. 
Stop judging each other. He's talking to the Jews and the Gentiles, and he characterizes the division within the church as those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith. He doesn't tell us in the text who's who, but most Bible scholars, and I take this as well, would say most of what he's saying relative to the weak is directed toward the Jews. David talked about that last week in verses 1 through 12. He says, stop judging your brothers or sisters. So they're weak in faith. So what does that mean? It means that they haven't fully appropriated all the freedoms that that are theirs in the grace of Christ. Grace has freed us, Paul's been saying, from the law, because we can't keep the law. The The law only judges us and keeps reminding us we need Christ. The grace of Christ frees us from God's judgment. But wow, for the Jew who grew up with kosher regulations of there's certain foods I can eat, certain foods I can't, clean and unclean, it was a big deal to be able to eat anything, including spare ribs and bacon. It was really hard. And so they, they, they were looking at their Gentile brothers and sisters going, I can't believe you guys are doing this. I can't believe you're not worshiping on the Sabbath. He says, these are weak. The interesting thing is the weak person thinks they're strong. The weak person thinks, oh, I've got a very mature faith. I've come to deeper knowledge. I understand these things are critical. He's saying, no, these are disputable things. He's not talking about matters of sin or salvation. He's talking about matters of opinion. And so they're weak in their faith in terms of appropriating all the freedoms that are there, theirs in Christ. He says, stop judging your brothers who actually are, are being able to live within the freedom of God's grace in a fuller way than you are. And those of you who are Gentiles, and I would characterize as strong, Paul says, stop looking down with contempt on your brothers and sisters. He's really going after attitude in the opening part of chapter 14. Now when we get to chapter 14, verse 13, he's gonna really get into more than just the attitudes that they have about each other that is driving the division, but about their behavior. So grab your Bible, chapter 14 of Romans. So if you're new to the Bible, it's after the guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the book of Acts, and then there's Romans. Use the table of contents if you need to do that. We're in verse 13. So let me just set up the divisions of what we're gonna be looking at from Romans 14, 13, all the way through 15, 13. So the first section, 13 through 23 of chapter 14, goes like this. When love is our priority, which is what he's calling him to, then here's what we're going to do. We're gonna understand that my brother or sister's growth in Christ is more important than exercising my freedom in Christ. And because of that, I'm gonna be willing to limit my freedom so that my brother or sister who might be characterized as weaker in the faith could grow to be stronger in grace. That's the first section. In the second section, in chapter 15, one through six, when love is our priority, My brother or sister's worries and concerns, what he calls their limitations, are gonna be far more important than my wishes, my desires, my cravings. And because of that, I'm gonna commit myself to be more in tune with their weaknesses than I am with 
my strengths and my abilities to do what I can in and through the gospel. And the final section, 7 through 13, has everything to do with our unity around Christ and his mission and how that is the end deal, the focus that's far more important than these disputable differences that they've been dividing over. So you're there in chapter 14, verse 13. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, verse 13, let us stop passing judgment on one another. He's summarizing 1 through 12. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Now, he's speaking to the, to the strong here. Don't put a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block to your brother or sister. Don't trip them up. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. So he's conceding their understanding about food. Nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, like your weaker brother or sister going, no, 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 you can't eat that, then for that person, not for everybody, but for that person, it's unclean because it's a matter of conscience for them. Verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. You guys, you're just, you, what are you doing? You're so talking about food and drink. What is it about? Of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That means to build them up. Don't trip them up. He's saying build them up. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. So there he goes. He's deferring again and conceding that they're right. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts, he's speaking of the weaker brother or sister, is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. All right, so he summarizes the teaching in verse 13 of what we looked at last week. Stop passing judgment. Accept one another. Christ has accepted your brothers and sisters, and he did it through Christ's death on the cross. God's accepted them, so you accept them. And then he gets into this whole point here about don't trip your brother or sister up by exercising your freedom in a careless way. Don't trip them up. Your responsibility is to build them up. Twice he concedes that they're right. The Gentile, the strong person is right in their conclusion that there's nothing wrong with this. You, you, you might maybe in our day go, um, 
You know, there's nothing wrong with having a beer. There is something wrong with getting drunk. But if your brother or sister has a real problem about you drinking or any believer drinking, then it's best for us not to do that in front of them. It doesn't mean you can't ever have a beer. But you are sensitive because I don't want to trip them up. I don't want to trip them up in such a way that they actually might think for them it's okay when their conscience is saying it's not okay. And in doing that, it's destructive. I cause distress. We, we move against our unity together as brothers and sisters, and we work against the unity that we need to have to fulfill the work of God in this world, where the great commandment to love God with all of our heart turns into the great commission to make other disciples of Jesus who do the same. So don't trip him up. Now, when he concedes that, that the food is all clean, he's just reiterating what Jesus taught. So look at Ma in Mark's gospel, chapter seven, verse 18. Here's what we read. Jesus speaking here. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but in their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Mark says, Jesus declared all foods clean. So we will trip someone up. We will become an obstacle for that person if we exercise our freedom in Christ in a careless way that could just be confusing to them. And it's not a matter of right or wrong that it's confusing. He's conceded you're right in being able to eat this meat. But you won't be right if you eat this meat in an unloving way that, what were the words? Destroys, distresses, causes them to fall. You're tripping up their own progress in grace. So he says, rather, build them up. Work for peace. Look again at verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort. This, this is not a passive thing. This is an active thing. This is an intentional thing. It demands effort and work. Every effort to do what leads to peace, to shalom, the good and welfare of my brother or sister in Christ in every area of their life, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Work for that and work for our mutual edification. That is that together they would be built up and together we would be built up because we're connected. And when we grow, we're growing together. And if I'm not committed to this, we're not both growing and God's church isn't growing to be the mature church that he calls us to be. So he's not saying, hey, for your weaker brothers and sisters, pull them aside, have coffee and point out why they're wrong. And try and do everything you can to convince them so that they'll grow up. He didn't say that. He didn't say change their view. He didn't say berate them for being immature. And he didn't say to the weaker brothers and sisters, so, you know, go ahead and sin against your conscience. He says, don't you dare sin against your conscience. So the biblical principle is just because we can do something through Christ and pursue something through Christ, does it mean we should, all right? So there's a difference between am I free to do this and am I exercising my freedom in love? 
Am I free to do this and will it build up my brother is a different question to am I free to do this and would it possibly trip up my sister? See the difference? And so Paul says the very same thing when he's talking to the church at Corinth who their particular struggle with meat wasn't necessarily the kosher laws and although we don't, you know, all he says is meat in chapter 14 and 15. So we don't know if some of the dynamics of Corinth are in Rome as well. In Corinth, the issue was, hey, some of the meat that you could buy at the butcher, actually the butcher got from the priests at the pagan temple. And they sacrificed that animal and then they sold it to the butcher who sold it to the Christian and the Christians could get all messed up, especially the Gentile Christians going, I can't eat that meat that's been offered to an idol, to a pagan deity. And so what he says to them is this. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, quoting the church who would say, I have the right to do anything you say. But, Paul says, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. But, Paul says, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So the application question here is, am I guilty of carelessly exercising my freedom in Christ in a way that actually could be tripping someone else up that's my brother or sister in Christ? Am I causing spiritual harm and not even aware of this potential problem here? So that's the application for the strong. And even though this section 14, 13 through 23 was all really about the strong, in case you weren't here last week, let me make the flip side application to the weak. And it goes like this. The question is, are there any religious practices or traditions that we hang on to and hold close that we're actually allowing these things to be the determination of how we judge other people's walk with God? Is there any kind of a religious tradition or religious practice? Let me give you an idea. So I grew up in a home my parents grew up in very conservative churches over in Switzerland. And they brought some of that back here, but there was a lot of it here in America as well. That, you know, Sunday was a very special day. So for you millennials, you won't, you won't probably have heard of blue, uh, blue, blue laws. Blue laws were that you could operate a business on Sunday, think Chick-fil-A, all right? You just, it, it was closed, like all the businesses were closed. So on Sunday, I mean, there are things that we did, like we went to church, first Sunday school, and then church, and then we had our family big meal at, at lunch, and then we had the obligatory walk. I hated that. And, and of course, my parents needed to take a nap, so we all had to take a nap. And then we went back to church, right? It's like, why World of Disney was going on? Are you kidding me? We had to go back to church. So we did all those things. But there was a whole bunch of things we did not do. We never washed the car on Sunday. That was Saturday's work. I'm hearing some amens. We never mowed the lawn. We never did any of those chores. And some of us grew up in such strict, what was called a Sabbatarian home, that you wouldn't go to a restaurant because you were causing someone else to work. I'm serious. So I remember when I was a young pastor driving home 
from work and seeing one of the members of our church mowing the lawn. Oh, my word. And I just smugly said to myself, well, you know, they'll come around. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. So let me give you some categories of where we have these disputable matters. So this is really tricky. We're going to talk about a caution in this area in just a bit. But what we can know from Romans 14 and 15 is the disputable matters had to do with food and drink and a special day. Very likely in the context of a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, it had to do with religious practices. Very likely. So let me give you some examples of what these disputable matters could be in our day. Alcohol, the Lord's day, what we do, what we don't do. Here's one. How often do we do communion? Some of us grew up in a tradition, we had communion every week. Like we didn't have communion last month. People were like, what happened? We didn't have communion. Well, what did Jesus teach? As often as you do this, and he didn't say every month, every week, as often as you do it. On the first Sunday, he just said as often. But hey, we have a tradition. We may have a preference. It's a disputable matter. Politics. Enough said. Bible translations. Some of us may have been around people that grew up in a King James Version only church. And every other version was inferior and worse. Worship style, worship liturgy, worship apparel. Do you guys know this? <laughs> At college church, this wasn't even close to an option. It was a dark suit. Okay, you're going to smile right now. It was a dark suit. It was a white shirt. And it was a tie every service. And the choir was robed. It, it was Awesome. I like this better. <laughs> and if you don't know why we do this, talk to me later. But okay, see what I'm saying? It's a disputable matter. Parenting philosophies, I can't believe they're letting their kids do that. I mean, they're Christians. Organizational structures of the church. Are you seriously saying we can't vote on the color of the walls of the new building? I thought we all do that. I thought that's what it means to be congregational. There was a, there was a you know, I was a youth pastor, so there's a day where um, a guy wrote a book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and so then there was this big thing about dating and courtship. Ooh, ooh. All right, so Love's Priority says, my brother's sister's growth in Christ is far more important than the exercise of my freedom in Christ. And because of that, I am willing to limit my freedom to help my brother or sister grow. It doesn't mean I can't ever exercise that freedom. But when I'm around them, I'm mindful of that. And that is clear in my mind. Their growth, not my freedom, far more important. Second section, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. There it is again. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
prophecy in Psalm 69, pointing ahead to Christ. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. He says, read your Old Testament, church. He's saying it to us today. Read your Old Testament, guys. We get encouragement, we get endurance that we might have hope that even though we fail like them, God is faithful. And then he has this beautiful prayer. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. No more pitchiness, harmony, oneness, unity. So here he's saying, love's priority understands this, that my brother's sister's weakness, their concerns, their worries are far more important than my wishes and my desires and my cravings to exercise my liberty and my strengths. So when he says bear with the failings, let's be clear again, what does he mean by their failings? He's not saying there's a failure of character for those people. He's not saying that they aren't saved. Their failure is to fully appropriate the grace of Christ in their life. He says, bear with them, support them, be considerate. Don't just tolerate them as a mental thing. This is going to work out relationally in love. And what he says three times in the first three verses is, Please them, not yourself, just like Christ. Three times we run in the word please, and it's command. Don't please yourself. Please them for their good. And when you're doing that, it's just exactly what Jesus did, who traded all the glories and pleasures of heaven for insult when he came here to rescue us. Psalm 69, verse 9. And Paul's prayer is, and reminds us that God is never going to ask us to do something, to bear with each other, without giving us the resources, endurance, encouragement, and hope. That's what he prays for. He gives us the example of Christ, and he reminds us that we've got to have Christ's attitude. If we don't have Christ's attitude in this thing, we are never going to get it right. If we don't see people as Jesus sees people, not someone to leverage Not someone to build us up, but someone that we can serve and give our lives away to help them grow in grace. So the application here is, who and what am I living for? Am I living for Christ and his kingdom or for myself? From the text, we can say this. We know we're living for ourselves when impatience, more than patience, marks my response to people that we might consider more immature, weaker in their faith. When there's more impatience around the people, I'm not there yet. I'm still living for myself. When arrogance dominates compassion and sensitivity and empathy, I'm living for myself. When I'm way more in tune with my liberties than I am their weaknesses, I'm living for myself. When I go, man, that is, I am so sorry you're there. And when you get to, you know, I get it that you're in preschool right now. And when you get to the first grade, we can be friends. I'm living for myself. 
when I'm disconnected from relationships because I feel like, you know what, there's just too much between us. When Christ has accepted us both, I'm living for myself. So the word of caution here is we need to be really careful in our application. David said it at least four times when I heard him preach. He said, David's talk, uh, Paul's talking about disputable matters. So we need to make sure what is a disputable matter and what's not a disputable matter. He's not talking about matters that are core of salvation. He's not talking about matters that the Bible clearly says we ought to do this or we ought not to do that. And so what we, and, and, and he's clearly talking about how we treat one another in the church. That's the first point of application. He's talking about our relationships within the church where we divide over these disputable matters. And so we want to be careful that we don't take something that the Bible clearly speaks about and says, well, we just need to be more tolerant about it because the Bible says don't judge. You see what I'm saying? So Moo in his commentary wrote this, extending tolerance to issues that the Bible speaks to as sin is both wrong and dangerous. We want to express tolerance and love to anybody, wherever you're at on any issue. But that doesn't mean we water down the issues that the Bible clearly speaks to so we get a unity at the lowest common denominator. Our unity is at the highest common denominator, and it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? amen. Yeah, you guys amen a lot more for David. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, here we go. All right, so twice now he's exhorted the strong, and the third one, he's going to just gather everybody up as he kind of comes full circle, kind of singing the chorus that he began back in verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. So here's the whole thing, the priority of our unity around the mission and work of Christ and against the division. So in verse 7, we read, accept one another. So he's come full circle. Go back to 14.1, accept those, right? So he's come full circle again. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. So let me just stop and tell you what he's doing right here. He's, going, he's, he's reminding them about God's plan. And God's plan was that Christ would come to serve his own people, the Jews, as he gave his life away, as he perfectly fulfilled the law that they couldn't. He came to serve the Jews. But the reason he came to serve the Jews wasn't just to bring the Jews into this better place, but that through the Jews, remember Genesis 12? Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that all the families of the world would be blessed through you. And so we five times here we're going to run into, he keeps talking about the Gentiles because God choosing the Israelites was always part one of his plan to rescue the whole world through those people and through Christ who came from Abraham's line. And he's saying your unity is so important because the whole intent of the gospel 
this good news for all people is that it would bring all different kinds of people together. And in the world 2,000 years ago, Jew and Gentile meant everybody. Because you either were a Jew or you weren't a Jew, and that meant you were a Gentile. And so he's, he's just going after this. You guys got to understand your division here is not only dishonoring to the work of Christ, but it is disconnecting you from the mission that God is calling you to be a part of. And he's reminding them that the plan always included different kinds of people, Jew and Gentiles. So where are we? Back in verse 9, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, now he's quoting Psalm 18, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, this is from Deuteronomy 32, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, from Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, will spring up and one who will arise, speaking of Christ, to rule over the nations in him, in Christ, the Messiah, the Gentiles will hope, Isaiah 11. He's saying the whole Old Testament from the law, Deuteronomy, from the writings, the Psalms, from the prophets, Isaiah 11, it's all been talking about God rescuing a people to himself through Christ for his glory. And you guys have let your division over these silly little things not just distract you, but divide you and disconnect you from the very thing that is at the heart of my heart, God says. And that is to reconcile all things back to myself through Christ for my glory and your good. And so he calls them back to that, repeating the chorus, accept one another, Reminding us, this is not an intellectual thing. This is a relational thing. I'm not accepting my brother or sister if it's a mental category, but I don't want to have anything to do. Like when I see that person, I'm going the other way. I don't even want to get into a conversation with that person. This is relational, not just intellectual. It's not just my attitude. It's my behavior, and the glory of God is our goal. So when it comes to accepting one another, he's been clear. Look at the slide. Here's how we do it. We don't fight or judge our brother or sister over disputable matters. We don't show contempt as a stronger brother for our, our poor, weaker brother or sister. We are committed not being a stumbling block. We work hard for peace and to mutually build up the church, and we act in love by serving our brothers and sisters, seeking their good and their best over our own. That's what Christ did. And that's what he calls us to. And it's radical because we live in a world and when you think about what it says about our rights and about our freedom, there's just like, we're pretty clear. Like we need to chase those down. We deserve those things. We ought to exercise those things. We fight for those things. And in certain areas, like this, use the whole thing of social justice and injustice, we ought to be all about those things. But personal rights, what the gospel calls us to do is lay those aside. Lay those aside for someone else's good. That's countercultural. 
It's not about our freedom. It's not about our convictions. It's not about my rights. It's about a responsibility to love and accept and to move forward the work of God. It's not what divides us. It is what unites us. And the gospel that we celebrate doesn't just transform our lives. It does something really unique to the church. It brings us into a family, a family that's gonna be made up at the end of the day of every nation, tongue, and tribe, of rich and poor and young and old as they live life here on this earth, of all the different ways we can slice and dice it in our day. And we're one in Christ. And we celebrate that. And we're transformed by the work of Christ. And it's so huge because when the world sees us divided over what? Seriously? You guys split a church over what kind of music? Really? Are you kidding me? And they're like interested that you're a Christ follower and you've been telling them about the beautiful thing is that Christ fills his void in our heart and he brings us into this relationship that we were created for and we can have peace with God and we can have the peace of God. And they're going, really? So tell me more about it. How's that working with you guys? It's just like, what a joke. What a joke that you're telling me what I can have with God through Christ when you guys are his followers and you're dividing over what? And that's exactly what Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. He said, Father, I pray the disciples who are gonna come down the line who follow me, I pray that they'd be one just like you and me are one for this purpose so that the world may believe that you have sent me so that the world would believe that for God so loved the world that he sent, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're a huge apologetic to the veracity and power of the gospel and our division mucks it all up. Why do you think the enemy wouldn't want to divide us? Because it's easy. It's right there in Jesus' prayer. So the beautiful thing is he ends with that benediction, this blessing. And the blessing is just powerful. Because what does he say? Tying back kind of to 1417 where he reminds us, look, the kingdom of God's not about eating and drinking, right? It's about righteousness and joy and peace. And what does he pray? He prays that the God of hope would fill you and me, not with a little bit, but all joy and all peace so that there'd be an overflow. Because here's the deal. Without Christ's spirit in us overflowing out of us, we're probably gonna live for ourselves. We're probably gonna be more concerned about our rights and our privileges and our liberties and freedoms than we are our brother or sister. And so I needed more of that overflow back in Quito, Ecuador, many years ago when Lori and I and a bunch of probably 21 high school kids went down for 17 days in Quito. And these kids were awesome. They all prepared a testimony. They were sharing their faith, like in the prison downtown Quito. I don't have the story to tell you, a time to tell you that story. It's just an unbelievable place. 
in nursing homes, in public schools, in parks, and they're sharing their faith. They were awesome. They were doing good work at HCJB, this Christian radio station, and we were staying in this missionary's denomination, this missionary organization's hospitality house, and they happened to be a very conservative. I don't know if you've thought about this, but just as there are weak brothers and sisters, there are weak churches and strong churches, weak mission organizations and strong mission relative to what? Grace, right? So this is on the weaker side of things. So at the end of the 17 days, the director of that house said, hey, let's just get together, kind of debrief how it went. Sounds great. It's good. How'd it go? I said, you know what? I thought it went great. We had a few communication things we needed to sort out at the beginning, but then, man, we were good. He said, well, let me give you some feedback. I said, oh, so that's what this meeting's about. (laughs) Okay. He said, your kids were dancing. I thought, oh, my word, were they? Then I was thinking, oh, that's right. So, um, again, for the young people here, there was, there was a thing called cassette tapes. <laughs> and we had this little player, and we, we had Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant on tape. And I guess some of the kids were doing this in the morning. And I guess that was dancing. So I was just like really quick, and here's this guy, and I'm going right, to convince him that he's wrong. And so the first thing I did is, so what did the Bible mean when it said, David danced with all his might before the Lord? And I'm going, got him. <laughs> and you know what he said to me? Well, that was different. <laughs> and um, I totally missed the opportunity See, I actually framed it in this framework. Oh, what a hypocrite. Are you kidding me? You're going to go, so I was in this really defensive posture for my students, but it was a lot about me. Really, oh, 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 that's too bad. I was not a very nice pastor right there in that moment. But I was thinking, you know, Jesus, he was like, he didn't like those Pharisees either. And so I was on like righteous, holy ground here. But I like totally missed the opportunity to do what this teaching. So what I'm telling you is this is hard. This is not easy. I walked out of that. And let's just say this. I closed the door in a firm fashion. I was mad. And I completely missed the opportunity to build my brother up. So then it made me think about my dad. I told you about my parents growing up in this Plymouth Brethren church, my mom in Basel, the German side, my dad in this little village of Baleg. I remember as a little kid going to that church the first time. It was this like an old farmhouse and they converted the upper story here into this meeting room. In fact, that's what they called it, l'assemblée, the meeting. Women all on one side of the room in the benches, head coverings. All the men on this side. Like there wasn't an organ, there wasn't a piano, there, there was just Miss, Monsieur Bill. And every time they, someone shouted out, let's sing this song, Monsieur Bill, Mr. Bill, he would sing, that was his name, he would sing it, start it, and everybody sing. And then there was communion. And this is what struck me, is when the communion elements were passed, my parents, who always took communion back at our home church, they passed the plate. Now, why, why aren't you taking communion? My dad said, well, you know, we're technically no longer in, in fellowship with this group of this tribe, so to speak, of people. And so I, I, I don't, don't think it would be good to take it. I, I, and it was like, what do, you, what do you mean? Like, this is the core of our faith, celebrating Christ's death on our cross that brings us all together. You're not taking it? And you, you, you're not taking it because you, you're no longer going to that kind of a church? Man, I was really upset. 
And I, I remember my dad telling me, actually, some of the brothers, the elders of the church, the leaders of the church would come to my dad and say, Henry, hey, it's okay if you want to take communion. We know you love Christ, but he wouldn't do it because he didn't want to be a stumbling block for his brothers and sisters. I love my dad for that example. I needed more of that. May we overflow with Christ's spirit, with grace. This is tricky stuff to apply. Let me help you with a couple things to think through. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time, so you've got a lot of traditions. Maybe you're just brand new to the faith. Those are different kinds of people with different experiences. Maybe you come out of a, uh, a Roman Catholic background. Maybe, maybe you're a Muslim convert, right? Maybe you come out of Judaism. So you think about, maybe you come from a different kind of a church. Remember, David was talking about ones and threes and twos and fours. Maybe you come from another country. And so as you just think about people from different backgrounds, that's gonna help you kind of inform, like, what are the things that are important to them that may not be, like doctrinally important. They're, they're not indisputable things. They're disputable things. Just think about that. Think about just the attitude. What's my attitude? That there'd be deference and humility and gentleness and compassion and a commitment to help that person grow so that together we could be more like Christ and do the work of Christ. Let's be that kind of church, a Christ-centered church for all people where the power of the gospel lived out in your life and mine is continually transforming lives, renewing our city, changing the world. Let's pray. And so, Father God, we pray with great, great thanksgiving for your Son who traded the glories of heaven for the indignities and insults and shame of the cross. Lord Jesus, that you would give up your freedom as the creator of all things who has always lived to be nailed to a Roman cross. That you would give up judgment when you came to save us. That you made every effort all the way to the cross to bring peace and to make us one. So Lord God, open our eyes to your glory, open our eyes to your mission to what unites us. May that be so much stronger than what divides us. May we be a beautiful church that brings you great honor and helps people in Madison and beyond know that you, Father, sent your Son for them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.